Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi arrived in Washington, D.C. today to a very warm welcome from President Biden. Bans and an honor guard on the South Lawn of the White House. Later, bilateral talks. Even later, a state dinner. The Biden administration calls this a meeting of two of the world's biggest and oldest democracies. But outside of the White House, protesters disputed that characterization. India is not the world's largest democracy. India is the world's most populated country that holds elections. That's it. Democracy is dead in India. India under Modi is backsliding on things that democracies prize, like human rights and press freedoms and independent courts. So why has President Biden opened his arms to Modi? It's all coming up on Today Explained. Okay. Mint, mint, mint. Okay. You wouldn't pay $15 for a cold brew, and you never spend $250 to see a movie. So why are you paying so much for your cell phone plan? Mint Mobile offers premium wireless plans for $15 a month. That's Hey, a- Jimmy, honey, do you want pasta? Hey, Mom, I'm recording right now. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. Upfront payment of $45 required, equivalent to $15 a month. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey, Jimbo, I'm going to heat up some pasta just in case, okay? You need your energy. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. You're listening to Today Explained. I'm Noelle King, and here is Secretary of State Antony Blinken previewing Narendra Modi's visit. Simply put, we see this defining relationship as a unique connection between the world's oldest and largest democracies with a special obligation now to demonstrate that our governments can deliver for and empower all of our citizens. Sidanan Dume is a columnist for The Wall Street Journal and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Sidanan, Antony Blinken has spoken. What say you? Why is this visit so significant? It's significant for a few reasons. Uh, First of all, this is Modi's first state visit to Washington. This is only the third state visit that we've seen in President Biden's term. Uh, So the the level of kind of ceremonial significance uh, has been elevated. Prime Minister Modi is also going to address a joint session of Congress. He has done that before. But this is the first time, you know, if you had to sum up that the U.S. has really pulled out all the stops for Prime Minister Modi. The relationship between the United States and Modi has not always been simple. There was a point in relatively recent history when Modi was banned from visiting the United States. What caused that? So you have to go back in history to 2002 when Modi was the chief minister, which is the equivalent of governor of the Indian state of Gujarat. 
And there were um, horrific uh, Hindu-Muslim riots that occurred on his watch as chief minister in which Muslims suffered disproportionately. They were basically anti-Muslim riots, I think would be a better way to uh, describe them. And at the time, the feeling in the U.S. was that Modi as chief minister had at best not done enough to curb the violence and at worst been complicit in it. And that led to them evoking a rarely used, in fact, I don't think it's ever been used before or since, law to revoke his visa. But all this was, you know, before he became prime minister. And once he became prime minister, things were smoothed over very quickly. Why then or how then did he get back in the good graces of the U.S.? I mean, quite simply because he's the prime minister of India and India matters a lot. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Leave the answer there. What um, why does India matter so much to the United States? Well, for a few reasons. And I think the most obvious reason is that in Washington, uh, many people view India through the prism of China. And if you look around Asia, you see only one other country with a comparable population. In fact, India recently overtook China to become the world's most populous nation. It has more than 1.4 billion people. It has a large and rapidly growing economy. It overtook the UK not long ago to become the world's fifth largest economy at market exchange rates. Uh, It has a long disputed boundary with China. So not only does it have a border with China, but it also has a very tense and fraught relationship with China. Uh, There was violence on that border three years ago in 2020, which claimed the lives of 20 Indian soldiers and at least four Chinese soldiers. In the remote Western Himalayas, there is little evidence of what led Indian and Chinese soldiers to their worst violence in decades. India and China share the world's longest unmarked border. Both sides have increased their military presence in recent months, with tension rising over who owns what land. And all this means that together the U.S. and India share an interest in ensuring that China does not emerge as the hegemon of Asia. If I had to point to one thing driving it, I would say the one-word answer is China. What does the United States want from India? What does it want India to do? It wants India to be a capable potential counterweight to China. And there are a couple of elements to that. Mr. Prime Minister, there's so much that our countries can and will do together. And I'm committed to uh, making U.S.-India partnership among the closest we have on Earth. It wants India to be able to defend itself on its border with China. It wants China to feel that there is another important power in Asia with which it shares a boundary so that China can't simply move all its attention to the Pacific and to East Asia. It has to kind of keep one eye on its Himalayan border with India. It wants in an ideal world uh, for India to be a kind of uh, uh, an example for other countries in the region to say that, look, you can have a fast growing economy in a democratic system, you don't need to become an autocracy like China. So for various reasons, the U.S. sees India's rise as being in its own interest. You cite India as a democracy, China as an authoritarian country. India is less of a democracy now than it was when Narendra Modi became prime minister. If you look at the economist chart of of democracies around the world, what you will see and what you've surely seen is that India has been sliding, sliding, sliding into less democratic territory. Can you tell me Why, when the international community looks at India, it says, 
over the last decade, it has backslid into something that is different than a pure democracy? I'll tell you something that's a little bit interesting, Noel. Um, every time I write an article, which is you know fairly often, about different aspects of India's democratic backsliding, I get an enormous amount of pushback from Indians on, on social media. And the reason for that is that if you look at India purely in terms of voting and in electoral terms, Indian democracy is actually quite robust. Uh, the last general election in 2019, there were more, more than 600 million people voted. It has a high turnout rate. The turnout rate is somewhere in the, in, in the, in the mid-60s. Governments change peacefully. So if, if your measure of democracy is the ability of people to go out and vote and change their government, India's democracy, in fact, is and it remains quite robust. But when we're looking at democracy, what we mean really is liberal democracy. And by liberal democracy, we mean are the institutions that are designed to check government excesses. Uh, the media is weak. A large number of television channels I characterize as lapdogs more than watchdogs. A lot of the newspapers are too scared to be critical. Um, you do see columns here and there. It's not as though you see no criticism. But I would argue that on Modi's watch, many journalists have been cowed. And the, the quality of the public discourse has declined sharply. Uh, the courts are often not willing to take unpopular stances that would challenge the government. Uh, and the bureaucracy has really become an instrument of the ruling party rather than standing apart as a, an independent body. If you take those three things together, uh, the state of judiciary, the state of the media, and the state of the bureaucracy, it means that there are far fewer checks on Modi as a prime minister than they were on his predecessor, Manmohan Singh. And that's really at the heart of people's concern about the quality of Indian democracy. Why does India being less of a democracy than it was a decade ago seem to matter so much to the United States? Well, I mean, if you care about democracy, you have to care about India, right? I mean, you're talking about one-sixth of the world's population. Let me put it this way. If India is a liberal democracy, it means democracy is a mass consumption good on our planet. It's like a Toyota. If India is not a democracy or not a liberal democracy, it means that democracy is a luxury good like a Louis Vuitton bag. And that is a sort of, you know, it's a fundamental and profound uh, difference for the whole planet. And that's why the U.S. cares about it. That was Sidanand Dume of the Wall Street Journal. So India being a democracy may seem like a minor thing. There are a lot of democracies out there these days. But at one point, about a generation ago, India very nearly became something else other than a democracy in a very dramatic fashion. And we're going to tell you about it coming up next. Support for this episode comes from Mint Mobile. There's a lot to love about your cell phone. It gets you safely from point A to point B. It can capture some of life's most important memories. Hey, it even does cat memes. But when it comes to your cell phone bill, those warm and fuzzy feelings are nowhere to be found. Enter Mint Mobile. Enter mom. Knock, 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 knock. Honey, Jimbo, I'm coming in. Mom, you can't keep barging into my recording studio like this. <laughs> Honey, recording studio. You mean your bedroom? Oh, Oh, it is a mess in here. Uh, time for a vacuum. Just quick, quick vacuum. Hey, can you just give me 10 minutes to finish this? What are you doing in here? What is a Mint Mobile? They do cell phone plans for $15 a month. 
Huh, well, that's too good to be true. I know a scam when I see one, honey. No, it's not a scam. Look here. Plans come with unlimited talk and text. And high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Oh, oh, that's something. Then I'd have to get a new phone, though, and put all my numbers in there. Uh, that's too much work. Forget it. No, Mom, you can keep your phone and all your contacts with any Mint Mobile plan. It's really easy. Huh. Same number? Yeah, same number. Okay, so I'm just gonna finish this ad oh, now. Pretend I'm not even here. Not even here. You're standing between me and the computer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. Upfront payment of $45 required. Equivalent to $15 a month. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Mom, the vacuum! The vacuum! You never call. That's because I live here, Mom. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. It's Today Explained. I'm Noel King. Friend of the show, Irfan Nuruddin, teaches at Georgetown's School of Foreign Service. Irfan, what was Indian democracy supposed to be like? Was it supposed to be like the one we have here in the U.S.? One could argue that it was supposed to be even greater. I mean, huh? you know, in 1947, when India becomes independent from the British Empire, it immediately forms a constitutional democracy that is universal suffrage in a very poor country with large amounts of illiteracy, a big urban-rural divide, but that was fundamentally multi-religious and multi-ethnic. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. And, you know, at the risk of being provocative, I mean, one should remember that in 1947, in large parts of the United States, African-Americans' right to vote was still uh, not fully protected. It wasn't in 65 in the Voting Rights Act that we really get to the same level of universal suffrage that Indians had enjoyed for 20 years prior to that. So what I would say the precious thing about India is that it was an example of a developing country, a newly independent country, showing that electoral liberal democracy could survive and flourish in a country that was in many ways fighting against every odd. It was a poor country. It was a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, a cacophony of beautiful languages, you know, 500 plus dialects. And yet elections became a festival. So that was what India's election symbolized for the world, that it wasn't just, that democracy wouldn't just be something that could happen in rich European, North American, uh, largely white countries, but could in fact be something that is truly global. And if we lose that, we lose uh, an example that has served as an inspiration for people around the world, that they too can create functioning democracies. In the United States, as you know, many people, a lot of mainstream analysts believe that the big risk to our democracy was Donald Trump, was his 
Apparent believed that democracy was less important than his predecessors believed it was. And it makes me wonder about India. Is Narendra Modi the reason that India is backsliding? It is true that under the Mr. Modi's majority BJP government the last 10 years have seen, I would argue, an acceleration of some of the forces that undermine democracy both in India, but would do so anywhere in the world. This larger majoritarianism, the notion, as with Mr. Trump, that there's a true Indian, right, in this case, a Hindu upper caste Indian whose voices are more important, whose preferences are more important than other people. And maybe just to again draw that analogy, a willingness to use and demonize when convenient the media, the bureaucracy, demonize it when it seems to be trying to be autonomous and independent, use it when it's willing to do its, you know, the government's bidding. For instance, you know, the current government has made it a talking point. They've introduced a whole new lexicon in which to discuss the media. So common terms often used by parts of the government and those who defend the government is to refer to independent journalists as prostitutes. A term created to combine press with the notion of a prostitute, right? Someone who sells themselves for money. Media houses have been, you know, scrutinized uh, by the tax authorities, often with very uh, unclear mandates. An explosive escalation amid the BBC Modi film row. The BBC uh, earlier this year had its offices raided after it aired a documentary about the riots in Gujarat in 2002 when Mr. Modi was the chief minister of that state. Tax officials aided by top financial department officials swooped down on multiple BBC India offices in Delhi and Mumbai. No clear reason for what the alleged offence was other than to send a signal that even someone like the BBC was not immune to government uh, interference for doing journalistic work. But Mr. Modi didn't invent that playbook. Uh, India's real crisis with democracy, arguably, was in 1975 when longtime predecessor Indira Gandhi declared emergency, suspended the constitution. Who is Indira Gandhi and what exactly happened when she was leading India? Indira Gandhi was India's first female prime minister. She is also the daughter of Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, you know, one of India's most prominent independence leaders and India's first prime minister. Democracy itself is different in every single country, even of the West. So each country has to find what is most suitable. Now, we want a democracy which makes uh, the people's voice heard. Mrs. Gandhi is installed as Prime Minister. She's a young woman. She's installed because the Congress party's leadership thinks that they can essentially use her as a puppet. But she proves to be quite uh, stronger, uh, harder to manipulate than they had hoped for. And But what it does is that it breaks for her a trust. She doesn't trust those around her. And we see a steady centralization of power in the early 1970s where she is really trying to accumulate power for herself, not necessarily because she was authoritarian, but because those public institutions were no longer to her liking. The president has proclaimed emergency. It comes to a breaking point in 1975 when she declares what is called the emergency. This is nothing to panic about. I'm sure you are all conscious of the deep and widespread conspiracy which has been brewing 
Under a new development today, citizens lose their right to appear before courts of law if arrested under the emergency. A suspension of the constitution, a suspension of habeas corpus, a attack on the press that's quite, uh, you know, vicious, unprecedented in India's history, widespread imprisonment of political opponents. These were the people who were destroying democracy. Destroying democracy? Destroying destro democracy. How? Because, well, I'm sorry that you people have such short memories, but um, because they felt they could not win an election, they said, we must take the battle to the streets. This lasts for a year and a half before she calls for elections and really critically loses those elections. It's a miscalculation of epic proportions for her, where she thinks she's so popular that she'll win these elections. But in fact, the Indian electorate says, no, we're, you're done. What you just did was a step too far, right? We take our democracy very seriously. She does come back to power in 1980 and begins to fuel some of this religious extremism, again playing in a playbook that has been followed by her successors and tragically is assassinated in 1984. Mrs. Gandhi was apparently shot at her home in New Delhi by two members of her own security guard. Reports are that she was shot eight to ten times with four bullets striking her in the lower abdomen. So a really complicated individual, for many a great leader, the first woman, woman leader, the first woman defense minister of the country, the, the, right, but also with this really ugly stain of her work in undermining India's democracy, uh, but also then maybe suggesting that India's democracy was more resilient than we worried it would be then and arguably is more resilient than we give it credit for being now. What you've just described, what Indira Gandhi did, is arguably worse than what Modi has done. Suspending the Constitution is like a huge move. Indian democracy comes back from it. They vote her out of office. Democracy wins. It holds. And we come to today. And I, I must now ask you, having seen Indian democracy recover once, very spectacularly, what happens if it doesn't recover this time? What do Indians lose? What does the world lose? We lose, in the worst-case scenario, our one true example of a developing country with a genuinely multi-religious, multi-ethnic, competitive, multi-party system, right? So a lot of multis in there, and that's deliberate because India's true strength is its diversity. And there are very few examples around the world in which that kind of diversity coexists with a functioning electoral democracy. But the challenge today, and this is true around the world, is that today's challenge to democracy doesn't run through suspending elections, but runs rather by recognizing that elections can be won in a free and fair manner by appealing to very majoritarian tendencies, right? So you appeal to the majority religion, the majority ethnicity, and you use the institutions of modern democracy, a legislature, the courts, to in fact instantiate a set of rules and laws that protect the majority and that subjugate the minority. So what does an, a future India that continues to have elections, that continues to even have competitive, noisy, messy elections, but in which 200 plus million of its citizens no longer feels welcome in society, no longer feels like they're safe in society, no longer feels like they can dress the way they wish, uh, live the lives that they wish to live, it also strikes me that um, there's a lot at stake here, not just for India, but for the rest of the world. If Indian democracy fails, 
under Modi or even under whoever comes after Modi? What does it mean for the larger cause of democracy around the world? Everything from uh, undermining, in many ways, the rhetorical framing of the conflict with China. Mr. Biden has made democracy versus autocracy the organizing principle of his foreign policy. So what does a partnership with India as an increasingly important partner, but where democracy is not as protected, mean for the credibility of American foreign policy? On the flip side, it gives China a really powerful talking point. China wants to represent its form of governance as a legitimate way of thinking about you know, what it means to be a functioning state in the developing world, sort of really frame this as being the West has a particular point of view, but ours is just legitimate. India right now is an inconvenient fact for the Chinese government as a developing country in the same region, but with a functioning democracy. The loss of that undermines that. But maybe more importantly, one cannot underestimate the importance of India's legacy, 75 years of elections, of democracy, in being a beacon of hope for brown and black people around the world that were seeking their own elections, much as the American Revolution and the founding fathers here served as inspiration for Nehru and Gandhi and Mr. Ambedkar, the architect of India's constitution. India's constitution and elections have served as a beacon of hope for people in the African continent, uh, throughout Asia, uh, and around the world. And we need to think of that as being a global public good that India has served as, and as such needs to be protected. It's a world resource. Um, and India should be justifiably proud of their democracy, but as is true around the world, we should also be asking hard questions so that we can preserve that legacy. Irfan Nouradin of Georgetown's School of Foreign Service. Today's episode was produced by Halima Shah and edited by Matthew Collette. Laura Bullard is our fact checker, and Michael Raphael was our engineer today. The rest of our team includes Avishai Artsy, Hadi Mawagdi, Amanda Llewellyn, Miles Bryan, Victoria Chamberlain, mother of two, Siona Petros, Patrick Boyd, and my co-host Sean Ramosfirm. Our supervising producer is Amina El Sadi, and our EP is Miranda Kennedy. We use music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Noam Hassenfeld. I'm Noelle King. Today Explained is distributed to public radio stations across these United States by WNYC in New York. And we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Okay, let's see here. I think this plugs in here, and we'll just, whatever, we'll just, okay, record. Okay. Support for this episode of Today Explained came from Mint Mobile. Oh, this isn't so hard. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase three months. That's a good deal. Um, and at Mint, families start at just two lines, unlike other providers who make you buy four or five lines to get the best rate. Goodness me, two lines. And here we are still paying for Jimbo's bill. What are you doing in here? This is my room. Uh, uh, nothing, nothing. I'm doing nothing. Wait a minute. Are you recording? You're, are you uh, recording? Uh, I'm almost done. Just, just let me finish. I'm on a roll. Okay. 
To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash explained. Upfront payment of $45 required, equivalent to $15 a month. Right, that's 15 times three. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Oh, woo! <laughs> okay, that was actually pretty good. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. 